Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Brian Wiest with Keller Williams in Rockwall, Texas. Last year, he closed 140 transactions with a total sales volume of $32 million and earned $1 million in GCI. His average sales price was $228,000, of which 50% were buyers and 50% were sellers. Brian has a 10-member team, five team agents, one full-time admin, one part-time admin, three virtual assistants, and one team leader. Brian Wiest is the team leader of the Brian Wiest Real Estate Group. He's been an agent for 11 years. In his best year, he sold 250 homes worth $47 million and earned $1.4 million in GCI. He works in Rockwall County, just northeast of Dallas. In this call, Brian talks about starting part-time for the first few years, going full-time during the Great Recession, focusing on REO and selling 65 to 100 homes per year without an assistant, exiting REO when banks cut commissions by 20%, while asking for more agent resources and time, effectively eliminating his profit, moving into traditional retail sales by focusing on internet leads, expanding too fast and losing track of expenses, grossing seven figures but ending up with a negative profit margin, tracking his profit and loss statement monthly, reducing his dependence on internet leads as the cost of leads skyrocketed, focusing on past clients and sphere of influence, and describing his annual marketing plan, building repeating referrals up to 60% of his business and returning to a healthy profit, unique marketing idea to parents of Little League sports that is resulting in 10 to 15 closings per year for only a few hundred dollars, team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Brian. Thank you so much. Hey, Brian. It's great to have you here. Before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Spent 16 years where I owned uh, actually driving schools in the Dallas area at 10 locations, ranging from uh, North Dallas all the way to South Dallas and East and West as well. Wow, and that's quite a long time, 16 years. That's a career. What made you decide to get into real estate? You know, I got into real estate, quite frankly, just to uh, flip some properties back in uh, the early 2000s and wanted to uh, save uh, the real estate commissions. And so I thought I'd get my license because I was doing a couple, you know, two or three a year. And so that's how I got into getting a license. And then I decided to uh, have an exit strategy out of owning the driving school business where we taught teenagers how to drive and taught defensive driving classes as well, and uh, started getting into residential real estate part-time. And then, uh, as I exited 
from selling my driving school business, then went full-time in real estate. And how long were you part-time in that transition period? I was part-time. I got my license October 31st, 2005. It really was part-time in the year 2006 and then 2007. So 2007, you went full-time, so about a year later, just over a year? Yeah, I would say so. It was very part-time in 2006, and then 2007, I'd still say I was really still a little bit part-time to full-time, but uh, 2008 is when I went 100%, 40 to 60 hours a week as a career in real estate. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about 2008, that first year you went full-bore and jumped right into the industry. How did that year go? Did you have a fast start or a slow start? You know, I really built my business even part-time. I remember uh, 2006, just by simply being available, answering your phone and treating people right, I was still able to, uh, I believe I made around 68000 then doubled that, still more or less part-time to full-time in 2007. But 2008, it was really a good year. Still hit about 175000 for a gross commission income or GCI. And that was just about building my business and, and meeting people, making friendship, and making sure that they understood that I cared about what they were wanting to do in real estate. At that time, it was a very uh, interesting time in real estate because values were down, lots of foreclosures available, and a lot of buyers were scared. So you had to really spend a little time and make sure they understood that I was there to help them so when they were ready to sell, that they knew that they were going to make money. And that was really important to me going in from 2007 into eight, and then as I grew my business. You mentioned the GCI. Do you recall the units that you were doing in those early years? You know, I believe 2006, I closed, I want to say, 22 homes. And for the next year, it was closer to 40. And then after that, it was more the 65, 70, up to 100 units before I actually had my team, which was in 2010, is when I had my first buyer's agent and full-time admin. But before that, I was closing on my own anywhere from 80, well, let's just say from obviously 65 to 70 units up to 100 units. Well, that's pretty amazing. And when you were closing the high volume there by yourself, the 65 to 100, depending on the year, did you have an administrative assistant to help you? No, I did not. And that was before all the virtual assistance you know, that we have available now. And I just did everything myself. And quite frankly, in the year of 2008, one of my goals was to get into REO. In 2008, 9, and 10, that was 75% of my business was foreclosures. And that worked real well. Uh, however, it was very heavy with paperwork with the different banks and, and so forth. And in the REO business, the banks will sometimes pick up some of that back-end work and allow you to stay out in the field more, and that may have been why you were able to go so long before you had an assistant. Is that true? You know, that's a fair statement. You know, with that being said, of course, they expected a lot of pictures. I can't even believe thinking back, I used to do the cash for keys and have cash in my hand and offer 500 bucks, 1000 bucks for people to leave their house that they a year behind on and, and 
just the crazy things we would do to literally get listings and do what we needed to do during that time that it was not a retail market like it is today. It was a foreclosure market. Right. The whole country was reeling in that Great Recession, and some areas got hit a lot worse than others. Now, it sounds to me like you were working the REO business pretty hard from 2008 to 2010. What year did you transition back over and start going back into the resale side? In August of 2010, the banks, all the ones I was working with, several of them, decided to lower the commissions from the 2.5% on the list side to 2%. And when that happened, I decided it was time for me to transition into um, more retail advertising on internet portal opportunities. And that's what I did. So the fourth quarter of 2010, I phased myself out of my relationships with the bank at that lower commission rate. And then, of course, went on to full retail in 2011 and grew my team in 2011 to uh, several more agents. And, you know, quite frankly, the market started growing at that time, too. So it was just really, you can call it luck, you can call it being smart, maybe looking ahead. All those factors came into play. And then in 2011, also moved from a uh, independent brokerage to Keller Williams Realty. And one of my main reasons, they are very successful in building teams. And so that knowledge and coaching and experience I got with Keller Williams helped me grow my team from 2011 to present. It sounds to me like you've been in the business for 11 years. Is that correct? That's correct. And last year, how many homes did you sell and what was your sales volume? You know, last year we sold right out about 140 transactions and it will give or take around $32 million. And we averaged in our sales price around 225 to 230 per unit in this area. Very good. Do you recall your GCI last year? Last year was probably right under a million or right around a million total GCI. And do you recall what year was your best year as far as number of transactions and volume, what the year was, the number of homes sold, and the volume? Sure. In 2015, I believe we sold 250 units. And about 1.4 million in GCI, about 47 million in volume. Now that would be my best units on that. And so, if I was listening to that, some of these listening, they're going to say, "Okay, you went from 250 homes sold down to 140 in a year." And the question is, what happened? Well, I'll tell you, there's a couple things. One, that was my best year as far as units sold. However, I ended up actually at the end of the year in a loss right at 70 to 80 grand. Wow. So I sold the most homes, had a great GCI, but at the end of the year, I spent so much money in order to have those units and have that volume. But at the end of the day, I really wasn't as profitable as I would have liked to have been. And so uh, when I was wrapping up that year and looking into 2016, making some decisions on how we're spending money, and of course, on internet portals and uh, you know, like Zillow, Trulia, Realtor.com, things of that nature, they were charging so much money for the lead gen, and uh, it was just not being cost effective. 
And this past two years, I've sold 100 homes less, but yet my profit margin is over 20% more. And since uh, learning in that system what your P&L can look like, and I've really focused on that the last, honestly, three years, what my P&L is looking like every month. So that will dictate, depending on the profit margin, I want to have the units we sell and how we do our marketing. Well, Brian, thank you for opening up and sharing with us. You're not the first top agent that we've talked to that's experienced that, the fast growth, and it eats up a lot of cash, and then making an adjustment. And so if you could just go a little further into what lesson you learned, it sounds like on the surface, the lesson was that those internet leads are rather expensive once you add up all the true costs. Were there any other lessons you learned to get your P&L in line and get more money down to the net? Well, I'll say a couple of things. One, you know, real estate, we have to look at the future. And so here we are in 2017, and certainly we have so many new agents getting into the business. And because of that, that means the marketing is going to cost more on internet portals because of supply and demand, as well as even though last year I had a lot of success with pay-per-click marketing, this year that has increased by 30%. You have to be careful with that. I would say a lesson I've learned is definitely you have to be able to switch gears in your marketing and not be tied into a long-term commitment. If it's month-to-month, that's the best way. That's as long of a commitment as you really want. If it's more than six months, you're actually putting yourself in a negative uh, situation depending on what happens in the marketplace. And certainly, you can't pay other agents too much. You've got to make sure that there's enough commission left over to pay your bills, pay your future expenses, and make just a little bit of money yourself. Because if not, you might as well sell or list that house yourself instead of having another agent do it. And so there's that fine line, and you've got to really watch your P&L, really watch your money going out to make sure the money coming in, you can actually save a little bit for the future. That's really good advice. How often do you review your P&L? Monthly. So every 30 days, you're taking a look and seeing what's going on. That's how you know that already this year, uh, your cost on your pay-per-click is up 30% is because you're monitoring it. I monitor that particular marketing every 30 days for sure. And really interesting, it actually goes up and down every 30 days. In July, it was over 10 bucks per pay-per-click, per the ROI was on that. But in August, it was half of that. So yeah. I'm always looking at that because it's not inexpensive. Sure, it's one of those big costs that's eating things up. Now, you also mentioned that you've learned that you've got to make sure you don't overpay the agents on your team, and you've got to find that balance. And it sounds to me like that means you made an adjustment and an adjustment down in the compensation that you pay out. First of all, did you make an adjustment down in the compensation? And secondly, how did that go over? How did you make that work? with the agents? Well, for me, I, um, I went to a more simplified team split where basically it's a, it's a 50-50 on listings and a 60-40 on a buy-side transaction. And I deleted, and this was actually not my decision. This was a, a group effort and where they, the agents on my team, they didn't want incentives. They just 
want to know exactly what they're going to get paid on every transaction. And so we worked through that. And that was really more my team's idea, not mine. But then for me, I needed to make sure that I'm still listing houses. And so what I found, I went through a couple of years where I, I let my team do a lot of listings and I let that control go away from me and I managed more and I coached more. And that all is great, except for, for me, I got a little rusty. And so in 2015, going into 16, I went back to what I was doing in 2011 and 12 and 13, which was going on two to three listing appointments a week. And what I found is two things. One, I was sharp and I was a better leader and coach for the agents on my team, as well as leader and coach for our Keller Williams Rockwall office. And then, of course, it put more money in my pocket because I'm listing those homes and selling those, which then also in turn help for reviews. And that's something we have to be cognitive of the future is to be getting some reviews so people can see that online, which is really important. My other assumption there is that you probably are more in tune with the market and what's happening in the market when you're going out on two to three listing appointments per week. Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. That is exactly true. And I felt like when I wasn't going on any appointments and I was really coaching and managing, that I lost a little little bit of that touch of the market. And, and for me, my goal is to go on two listing appointments a week. I mean, that's it. That's what I do, week in and week out. That does keep me in touch with what uh, consumers are saying, thinking, and, and I ask them those questions as well. You mentioned that one of your objectives, one of the byproducts of you getting back out in the market is that you're getting more online reviews. Where are those reviews showing up and how are you making those happen? Well, for me, I use a company called uh, Signpost, and this is signpost.com. And it's an interesting company. It's a company that helps you gain reviews and control those reviews. And so for me, we have a system and process in place where we're getting reviews from our client early on. And this is what's real important. No one's going to give you a review after they've closed. They're too busy. They've moved on. They've got kids in school. They're trying to move. And so we get reviews right after we list a home, right after we execute a buy-side contract. And by having those reviews, now we can also control those. And so I purchased a domain name, which reviews-surveys.com. All my reviews go into one place. So now I have a link I can send out to consumers or that we can have on our websites or we can integrate in the internet portals. So instead of Zillow or Trulia or Realtor.com controlling those reviews, I control those reviews, which is really important. And of course, we still get reviews on Yelp and we still get reviews on Google Plus, our accounts there. But we at least get one or two reviews a month by integrating that into our process right after we've listed the home or contracted a buy side on a home. Interesting. You've centralized where people are putting up the reviews. And did you say that then you can push those reviews out to some of these other sites like Zillow as an example? 
I can integrate that link in my uh, my profile. Okay. And so, of course, someone has to be on my profile. Then you have to choose to click on the link, you know. And then, for example, on Homes.com, they allow me to recap the review on my profile, and then it shows up there as a review. And so it just depends. Every internet portal, they have their own little, you know, control issues sometimes. And so you just work with every one of them a little differently. And so that's how I chose to go that direction with reviews. And I like it. It works for me. And it seems to work for my clients as well. We're more successful, I believe, on getting more reviews than we were ever able to do in the past, let's say with Zillow, for example. And approximately how many reviews do you have at this point? It's a great question. I'd have to look that up. You know, I would say um, maybe pushing 100. I'm just going off the top of my head. And have you found that that's made any type of difference in either your lead gen or your conversion? Are people talking about the reviews? I don't know if I can quantify that other than when we do pre-listing packets and we FedEx those out. When we do listing presentations, we make sure that people know that they can go to that website and read reviews. In other words, I think some agents are afraid of that. They don't even bring it up. We make sure that's part of our listing presentation. That's part of our uh, our marketing. And we want people to know, hey, go check this out. Go read our reviews. And it's not just about me, Brian Weiss. It's also about my team. And that's what you see in those reviews. It's not just about me. It could be about uh, another person on the team, another agent, or it could be from the admin or the pictures or the, you know, whatever someone wants to talk about. I'm sorry. I was flashing back and I was remembering when people would give me more positive reviews about my lead assistant than myself. And Have you ever had that happen? Well, I really like when people are happy with our photography, which I'm not the one doing the photos. <laughs> I mean, I right. prof- I've got three professional photographers that we use. But well, I'm glad you said that because people are happy with maybe the description write-up, which is something I'm not doing. I have a gal out of California that takes care of all my social media. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy when they're happy with what we're doing, even though that might be with a virtual assistant. That still reflects on me. And that actually works both ways, whether it's positive or negative. Sure. And it was interesting what you mentioned that you're going after the reviews at the time that the client is the happiest. And that is when they just chose to hire you to sell their home or just signed on a contract to sell their home. They're going to be in the best spirits at that point. And that, you said, is when you're asking them for those reviews. That is 100% correct. And that, that is me being very purposeful on wanting that to happen when they are happy. Because you and I both know, and other real estate agents know this, that as the transaction proceeds, you never know when you're going to get a call and the buyer decides to terminate the contract. Well, for some reason, that ends up being the listing agent's fault, somehow or another, even though we have really no control over that. And so before anything negative happens, we want to make sure we get a positive review in. You have control over those reviews. If you do receive a negative one, you can answer it, reply to it, keep it up, take it down, talk to the person. You you have some action that you can take since that's a centralized area that you're getting those reviews. 
Yeah, Mike, and that's what's real important because so if I see a negative review come in, and I do see it first, it comes directly to me, I'm able to go and contact our client that we're currently working with and kind of say, hey, so tell me what's going on and, and how can we fix things and, and uh, how can we communicate better if that's the case, whatever the situation is. And so then we have an opportunity, perhaps before we even close, to turn that you know uh, comment around to a positive one. And then they, uh, you know, if they choose to, they can always change that review uh, before closing or afterwards. Let's talk about the, the technical way that you're getting the review, the actual nut and bolt there. How are you sending out the request for the review? Is that going out by email? Yeah, that's an, actually an email that we have my virtual assistant, part of her um, process after the property is listed and the listing has been approved. Then she sends out a review email that is sent directly to both. Let's say uh, if it's uh, two people that own the house, then each person has the opportunity to do a review. And how do you phrase that in the email? Do you say, please give us a review on the service you've received so far? How does it look? Yeah, great question. Actually, the, the signpost program, actually, it's real simple. They just send an email out that says, hey, on a scale from one to five stars, what would you say about Brian Weiss Real Estate Group? And People just click, whether they click a four, five, three, you know, whatever they decide to click. And that's it. And then later, then they're asked to do more, you know, do you have any comments to add to your five-star review? And that opportunity is given to our clients. And then even after that, they're asked then to do a Yelp review or Google Plus review. And, and what's interesting is that so many people don't want to go down that path. They don't want to get involved with Yelp or Google. They just, you know, it's a little bit different if it's a restaurant and someone had good food or something like that. But I've just noticed in real estate, they like just to do the old, yeah, it was five stars and they did a great job. And they, they don't get into a lot of details. And for whatever reason, we just don't see people liking to do the Google, Yelp, or Zillow, truly reviews. Um, and I think that's because it takes so long to go through that hassle of doing that. Brian, I'm going to switch gears out of reviews for a second and go back to a a follow-up question. You said that you were working the internet leads pretty hard, but then you reduced that effort because of the expense. What did you move into and what did you start to work hard to get the lead generation to continue after you reduced the internet leads? Well, and I, I'm kind of going back to this signpost. One reason why I got with this company is because you also could do campaigns. And so one of those campaigns is, of course, reviews. The other campaign we do is past clients. I mean, year in and year out, we always see that 50% of our business comes from our sphere of influence or past clients. And certainly, we know this in our industry is that for whatever reason, sometimes realtors are afraid to call their past clients or talk to them or, or just check in to see what's going on. And what I wanted to do years ago was have a system in place where we are like currently where we touch our past clients and our sphere of influence through texting and emailing and not always relying on one of my agents to call someone. So I took that and in our, our past client database, we make sure that nine times out of the year that we are sending an item of value. And that item of value could range from a coupon uh, simply for, you know, you know, buy one dinner, get one free, 
There could be, uh, I've got one of my vendors, he does $1,000 off for any um, construction work over $10,000. And so my admin is really good to reach out to my vendors and we send out an item of value. And mainly so that person remembers, hey, that's coming from, you know, Brian Weiss Real Estate Group. And we're not always asking for a referral. We only ask one time a year for a referral through text and email. But the rest of the time is through, uh, like I said, an item of value. So our focus has really been to reach out via text and email to our past clients. And then individually, my agents each quarter will reach out to their clients and leave a voicemail or talk to their past clients and kind of see what's going on in their lives. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Let's dig into that a little deeper. This is a great area. As you mentioned, you're Repeating referral from past clients and sphere of influence is typically over 50%. In fact, if I understand correctly, last year it was 60%. And the first question I have for you is how big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Well, I would say our past client, the last time I looked at it's right around 1382, something like that. It's really close to 1400 folks that are in our past client database. Of course, What's great about technology is that, <laughs> of course, you always have to be on top of this, but uh, is that for every home sold, sometimes that's two past clients because everybody has their own phone number, they have their own name, and they have their own email address. And typically, one out of those two people, they are more likely to be more aware of getting texts or emails, and it just depends on their personality and so forth. And but anyway, to answer your question, we're, we're out right at about 1,400 people in that database. Now, is that just the past clients, or does that also include sphere of influence? That would be past clients, and then we have a separate uh, sphere of influence campaign, but they're very similar, but I like to have those separated in case we wanted to do perhaps uh, different marketing with one versus the other. And how many people then are in your sphere of influence database? That would be right a little over 800. I want to say it was, like, uh, it was in the low 800s the last time I checked. And so combined, we're right around 2,200. Well, yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. And let's talk about how you decide to put people into the database. The past clients are easy, although you made an interesting point. You said that, for instance, if a couple just bought or sold a property, you're going to have two entries instead of one. Is that true? That's correct. So that 1382, there could be less than 1,300 properties, but you got 1,382 people. Correct. Okay. How do you decide who's going to go in the sphere of influence database? You know, it, it literally could be, well, of course, our vendors that we work with, you know, and uh, anyone that... I meet or one of my agents were to meet that we want to make sure we keep in front of mind Brian Weiss Real Estate Group. And so, you know, that could be the president of the Chamber of Commerce, 
all the way to the plumber that does business with us. Uh, of course, our title companies that we do business with, but also people we just meet. So on our sphere of influence, we will add our open house leads that we've received. And and we, of course, earmark those so we know where those folks are coming from. And so, you know, we don't want to, uh, I would say to answer that question, it would be people that, that would be in our have-mets section. So we've actually been face-to-face with those individuals. Yeah, that's what it started to sound like to me. These are people you've actually been in front of. You've actually had a, a little conversation with them. It's not a list that you received, some random list somewhere that you added. These are people you actually spoke with. Correct. Do you ever remove people from the database, and if so, why? Oh, you know, I think we're always looking to uh, streamline what we're doing. And, yeah, there's going to be people we would either remove from our sphere for one reason or the other. Uh, It could be because they are now a real estate agent and so (laughs) forth. So that could be one reason. And, you know, just for different people, of course, some people, they opt out. You know, they don't want text or email. They they know who you are, and they they say, hey, if I need you, I'll call you. And so that's fine, too. But I don't even know if that even happens every month. That might be about a half a dozen people to a dozen people a year that we end up either opting out or we take them out of our system one way or the other. You started to go down the path of how you stay in front of these people and you start to give us some parameters. Could you walk us through a big picture of what you do on an annual basis, all the different things that you do to stay in front of them for calls and either snail mail or email or you mentioned text? Could you give us that big picture again just so we get it all in one place? Well, on our past clients and sphere of influence, my expectation is to have nine touches out of 12 months of a text and email with what I call an item of value that is not real estate related. And then two times a year, we'll do something real estate related. Like for example, two months ago, I offered a free home warranty if we helped someone buy or sell a home. And so that's an offer I'll do once a year. And so then out of 12 months, we have texted and emailed our sphere of influence and or our past clients 10 out of 12 months. Uh, Then, of course, um, January of every year, we do one mail out with everyone's uh, closing document with a uh, typically a couple of marketing pieces that we mail out from the previous year's closings. So that way they have all that information for tax purposes. And then uh, one goal that we did not achieve this summer, but I will make sure we achieve it this coming spring, is um, inviting folks to come by my office and pick up uh, a marketing piece or an item of value, uh, maybe like a six-pack cooler, you know, uh, uh, that they can take with them on vacation or whatnot. And um, so I want to start doing something a little bit more like a movie night, a couple things like that. I I do believe that we've got to take care of our past clients and the people that have met us that were really happy with us. And so whatever they do, know someone that wants to buy or sell that they are referring an agent on my team to help them. You also mentioned earlier that you ask for a referral only one time a year. When is that and what are you doing there? 
You know, we asked that in March. And for the upcoming, let's just say, you know, second and third quarter, which which is going to be really the busiest, typically. And that's when we're actually asking for that in a text or email. And so that's when we do that. Of course, you know, my agent's pretty good to always be asking for referrals, but we don't. I guess one thing we just don't do is we don't want to beat people up. We don't want to make that the only reason why we're calling them versus just calling check in to see how they're doing and their family is doing. And if there's anything we can do to help them is the main thing. You also mentioned that uh, you're making a quarterly reach out. So four times a year, your agents are making a call. If they don't get a hold of anyone, they're leaving a voicemail with Mm -hmm. these folks. Do you make those calls as well? Yeah, I'll make them on my personal past clients as well. And the point of that call is just to ask a simple question is, you know, what's your greatest challenge, either personally or professionally, and how can we connect you with someone else that can help you with that challenge? And so that's our goal is to help with that networking. Aha. Okay. And how often do you hear the answer real estate versus I have a problem with, I don't know, something else? (laughs) The, The lawnmower won't work. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, listen, that's what we want to hear is, you know, um, and it could be as simple as, yeah, I'm really irritated. My, my homeowner's insurance went up. And then we say, well, hey, let me give you two or three other people to call, you know, that we've worked with. So what's nice is that there is some feedback on that. And once again, we're not asking for a referral, but we're helping uh, bridge the gap or help with a challenge someone may be having at that time in their life that's not real estate related, but they always remember if we were able to give them that free advice and connect them with the right person that we're top of mind at that time. You mentioned that the, the database, you got the 1382 and the 800, the past clients and sphere of influence. Are those folks your past clients and sphere of influence, or do they also contain people from uh, that are the past clients and sphere of influence of your team members? There anyone that has had a transaction with Brian Weiss Real Estate Group. Okay. And so when a new agent comes in, do you ask them for their sphere of influence list and then do you add it? Yes and no. There's a couple of things. One, a new agent needs to work on what I really call the top 150 and to take 150 index cards. I have them put down a name an address, phone number, and email, and ask them to work on within a 30-day period of 150 people that they're going to put in as their database. And then we do earmark that. So at Keller Williams, we can use our eEdge system, our market leader system for that database for them to keep in touch of, but that's more for them to uh, really contact and make sure those people are friends with them on Facebook and that those 150 people know who they are and that they are now in real estate. Because that's very difficult for new agents is to get across to their friends and family that they're actually a real estate agent and not a friend or family member, if that makes sense. It does. That's good advice. For your referrals that you're receiving yourself, did I pick up somewhere that you do a lot of networking, maybe at sports events? Well, I'm out and about, you know, and in the public setting, and we do do 
different sponsorships, whether it's through the chamber or through uh, different charities. And so we try to, you know, keep my name out there for branding purposes. And so I don't know if that answers your question, but one thing, and I know this is, I like to have my agents and I give them some money to make sure that when their kids are having their, their football, soccer games, and baseball games, that they've got a, a branded ice chest full of drinks. And it's not for the kids. It's actually for the parents because the parents sitting there, they get hot just watching their kids play baseball and soccer and whatnot. And it's a, a nice way of saying, hey, this is who I am with their name and their phone number, and it's a branded ice chest, but it's for the parents only. And we see that that turns into at least 10 to 15 closings a year by doing that little bit of sponsorship, if you, if you would. That's a great idea. So one of the agents on your team will bring that to their little league game. It'll be sitting next to them, and they can offer it to the other parents. It's branded. You're cooling down the other folks, let's say, on a hot summer day out there watching baseball, as you mentioned, as an example. And you're saying that that, just that one little thing will start up. It'll spark some conversation and end up with 10 to 15 referrals a year. Not a bad little investment for a cooler. How much does a cooler cost? Yeah, right. You're really talking about 30 bucks, and you spend, what, another 20 bucks on some G2 or whatever, you know, whatever water. And, and yeah, it's, uh, it is very interesting how that works. And, you know, it works out really well. It does work out well. For the folks listening, the agents listening, do you have any other advice for how they could generate more repeating referrals out of their business? I think I would say a couple things. One, don't be afraid to spend money on a transaction coordinator that takes it upon themselves to communicate with your clients during the transaction weekly. The number one complaint that sellers have is that they have no idea what their listing agent is doing to help sell their house. And I know we're in a, you know, obviously a little bit of a hotter market where properties are selling quicker than they did in 2008, 9, and 10 when the market was down. Start thinking about what you're doing today what your process is looking like. So soon, instead of a listing selling within a week, a day, a week, a month, what if it's six months? What does that look like? What do you have in place that you can make sure that your clients are being communicated, whether they're on the sell side or they're on the buy side? And that doesn't always mean it has to be you because your job is to be lead generating, is to be prospecting, which does include your past clients and sphere of influence. And on that side of the ballgame, I would say you need to prospect and use a script um, out of how can you help them in their daily life. Because if you can do that, connect with them on that level, then they're going to be clients with you for life. And more importantly, refer you for life. And so a little bit of advice to at least start thinking about, especially for those new agents, that maybe they're only closing a couple of transactions a month, but what happens when you start closing 8, 10, 15 transactions a month? You've got to have those processes in place to grow. It's very interesting. You mentioned that a few times now that 
when you're having the conversation with your past clients, your sphere of influence, you're asking how you can help them on a bigger level. And to me, what you're doing is you're moving them from a transactional past client more into the friend category. Is that the way you're thinking about it? Yes, and and everyone's a little different. You know, I've got some past clients, they they don't want any help or assistance. But you definitely have some that they're they're open for that. And and no matter what their personality is, at least they know that I care. And people aren't gonna care about you until you show that you care about them. And that is how you get from just a unit driven team, if you would, to a caring team. And uh, and look, that's not easy. That's not easy. When you're closing 15 to 20 transactions a month, you have to slow down and be purposeful on that. Let's do this. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about your team. First thing is, could you describe your team? What we're looking for is kind of a big picture view, who's on the team, what their titles are, what they're responsible for. For my team currently, I have five full-time agents, and they all list houses, and they all represent buyers. I uh, have a full-time operations manager that's here in my office, and then a part-time administrative assistant. Uh, Three virtual assistants, one in uh, California. She takes care of my social media and uh, internet marketing. And then uh, two others that is a, one is a listing coordinator, another one is a listing coordinator. And they all work uh, with my operations manager to make sure everything is, is going along smooth and meeting my expectations. As far as the agents go, we work uh, as a team to meet their goals. And then individually, of course, everyone has a little bit of different financial goals. And then depending on what they're wanting, for their lives, for one year, three year, five year. And we review every month, actually, are you achieving what you're wanting to achieve? And then how can I get you there? And so in the past, I used to have listing agents. Then I had nothing but buyer's agents. But I switched gears on that as the market changed. And as we had more and more people wanting to list their homes, then we made a change two years ago where agents could do both. And I just took it upon me to do more and more training on the listing side to make sure those agents fully understand you know, how to truly represent their sellers on the listing side. With your team agents being able to work with both buyers and sellers, you've done it for a few years now. Do you believe that overall that the agents are more productive or less productive than when they specialized in just one side or the other? I think they're more productive. And here's the thing. When, when I had, you know, at one time I'd have uh, two listing specialists, and that's pretty much all they did. It was 80% listings and 20% buy side. And then I had about, let's say, three or four buyer's agents, and that was that's what they did. And if they referred a listing to the team, they got a 25% referral, and then they just helped on the buy side. One thing I found in this transition is that now every agent is thinking about listings first. I was really purposeful on that because I, I wanted my team to always think about listings. And in fact, the only thing that we can truly control is our listings and our listing appointments. It's very difficult to always control whether a buyer is going to buy a house, whether they're going to offer, 
Are they going to get buyer's remorse and terminate? Are they going to mess up and go buy a new car the week before they close? I mean, even though we tell them all these things to do and not to do, that doesn't always mean that's going to happen. And certainly when I'm tracking my numbers, you could ask me the question, hey, Brian, how many times do sellers terminate contracts and buy a buyer out per year? Well, I can tell you it's probably never. And it may be one time. Maybe. I have to really think back the last time that happened. But on the flip side, how many buyers per year terminate? And I can tell you for us, uh, now look, the past two years have been kind of interesting, but we look at at least one to two buyer terminations a month for whatever reason. And so by focusing on listings, you can control your income, you can control that those closings are going to happen better than just on the buy side. And then for my agents, they're thinking listing appointments first, listing appointments first. The buyers will come along. That's going to happen. But the listings you have to focus on. Very good. That's really good advice. And I like that that's the result of opening it up. That's pretty exciting. I can't wait to talk to you down the line to see if that plays out as the market changes. Well, Brian, thank you for telling us about your team and your business. A question that a lot of agents are going to have on their mind is, are you profitable? Yes. For me, I stay right at anywhere from a 28 to 31% profit margin. And I'm really excited about that. I'm, I'm happy. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and look, I'm not in California where we have the average price point of, you know, 600, 700,000. I mean, we're doing day in and day out transactions that are averaging anywhere from 180, you know, to 250 to 300. But our average transaction is 225. And so we work, work and work hard, you know, for our clients. And, but yeah, I'm very happy with where we're at for sure. Well, Brian, what drives you? Hey, great question. I tell you what, what drives me, and I know this might sound corny, but it's just what drives me is helping people sell their house to make money to move on to their next home and to move their equity. At the end of the day, when you buy a house in the 20s and you buy another home and you buy another home, let's say every five to eight years, you're not ever going to see that equity until either one, you die and you leave it to your other spouse, or two, you retire and you cash out. That's when you see that equity. I love the fact that over the past 10 to 11 years, I've been able to help people from an early age to build their equity through two or three transactions. Uh, what drives me also is helping my agents on my team to achieve their goals. I mean, I've got agents making just, you know, really good money, certainly six figures. And how else could they do that and be leveraged to have a balanced family life as well? So they're able to make a six-figure income, have time with their family, not be pushing paperwork, and we work together to achieve that same goal. And that, that truly drives me to see their accomplishments that then just helps the team as a whole. Brian, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? The first thing I would, and, and I do tell new agents, I say, be realistic with your goals. 
have a elevator pitch, if you would, why someone should use you and really understand that they may not want to use you because you're new. But that's okay. Everyone started out. Everyone started out with their first listing. But I would say be realistic with your goals. Understand that you have six months to have a closing. Six months. And you need to do everything you can to focus on getting a listing. And you build your business around your first listing. And then your second listing. And your third listing. And you focus on appointments. And you do everything you can in your conversation to get a listing appointment. Brian, do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think so because a lot of newer agents or existing agents don't spend the time or choose to go talk to uh, you know top agents just to kind of see what makes them tick or what works and what doesn't work, let's say, as well. Well, Brian, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? The only thing I would say is that um, as you look from 2017 and beyond, understand the market will change and that be prepared for that and to save a little money. You know, when the market's hot, take uh, 10 to 15% of your gross commission income and put it aside because that rainy day will come. But also stick with your career. There's so many agents that will come and go. And they kind of come and go as the market is hot or not. But if you stay with it and you're consistent and you think ahead, you can make a really nice career in real estate and grow your business, grow your database, and start doing at least two to three listing appointments a week. As long as you're going on listing appointments, you will make good money and have a powerful business for years to come. Well, Brian, you are so right to focus on listing appointments and repeating referrals from your past clients and sphere of influence. You bravely shared your mistake and lesson about building the top-line revenue too fast while losing sight of the bottom-line profit. You corrected, cut your expenses, retargeted your business towards profitable repeat and referrals, reviewed your P&L monthly, and brought profit back to the bottom line. I see clear skies ahead. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 185 homes last year, 58% by repeat and referral. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar, 
titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.